Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, friends. Thank you so much for being here. We're so excited to learn with Rabbi Orenstein today. Um, and Alex is going to post his book in the chat. We hope as you enjoy this program, you will dive deeper into his book that he just published about that, which is um, the basis of his talk today. And we're always happy to partner with Beth L Congregation. Um, so thank you. And Wendy, who is here representing Beth L today, is going to introduce our speaker. Welcome, Wendy. Thank you, Reb Shmuley, and shalom, shalom, everyone from Phoenix out to wherever you are. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker today. Dan Ornstein is the rabbi of Congregation Ohev Shalom and a writer living with his family in Albany, New York. He also teaches Judaic studies in the middle school of the Hebrew Academy of the Capital District. Rabbi Ornstein is the author of Cain versus Abel, a Jewish courtroom drama published by JPS in 2020. He blogs at the Times of Israel and contributes essays to WAMC Northeast Public Radio, the Jerusalem Post, and the Jewish Forward. He's a contributor to the multi-volume Masora Matrix book series on Judaism and a number of other print and online journals. He and his wife, Marion Alexander, are the proud parents of Joseph, Shulamit, and Vered. Rabbi Ornstein, it's a pleasure to Thank introduce you. you today. Please take it away. Thank you so much, Wendy and Alex and Rabbi Yankluitz as well. Folks, I'm so glad to be here. It's really an honor. Um, Valley Bet Midrash is doing wonderful stuff, and I'm really happy to be part of it today. Um, just a little bit of uh, kind of uh, administrative stuff. Um, I'll tell you what we're going to do. First of all, um, the text that we're going to study today um, about this topic of uh, what the world's first murder, the Cain and Abel story from the Bible, can teach us about dispensing justice and injustice. These are rich texts that we're going to look at. I'm really passionate about these texts and about our really being able to think about them and learn from them as well. But there's so much here that what I'm going to ask folks to do is, if you have questions, why don't we start by using the chat and when questions come up towards the end of my presentation, what I promise you we'll do is, is we'll try to get to as many of those questions as possible um, about the text that we're going to look at. Um, if I were doing this in a different format where I was just talking about the Cain and Abel story itself, um, we would really just kind of intersperse uh, whatever I was talking about with uh, some conversation about those questions. Let's start by using the chat, and I'll get to as much as I can uh, when uh, sort of, you know, towards the end of what we're going to be doing. So what is Cain and Abel? It's a foundational story. It's a really important foundational story about sibling rivalry and uh, about fraternal responsibility and all those different kinds of things. But I want to also present to you the idea that the Cain and Abel story, um, which, by the way, as the, the great Mordechai Kaplan once said, is a story that you should take seriously without taking it literally, right? Um, it's a great piece of Torah and one of the most important foundational Torah stories, though not necessarily a story which is history per se. Um, it's used by the rabbis later on in their reading of this text um, as really a story about the moral foundations 
of law, in particular, the adjudication of law in a courtroom. What does it mean to administer justice fairly in a courtroom setting? We're going to see how the rabbis do that. And it's absolutely fascinating, ladies and gentlemen, just an amazing thing that the rabbis do in the later writings of the oral Torah, what we call the Mishnah, um, which is kind of the oral Torah companion to the written Torah, where they're going to use the Cain and Abel story in a way that's actually quite uncharacteristic for them to be able to make the point about what justice really is and what it means to really dispense justice. So what we're going to do today is we're really going to kind of read this great narrative, the Cain and Abel story, with these fresh eyes, trying to understand, as the rabbis before us did, what this story is really trying to tell us about what it means to do justice, not only in terms of protecting the innocent from people who would murder them, but protecting people who are accused of being guilty of a crime, protecting them as well when, in fact, they may be innocent also. All right, so here we go. Let me do this. Let me share the screen right now. Uh, and again, folks, if there's a question or Wendy or Alex, if there's something you need to let me know, obviously, just let me know. Uh, and let's take a look at a couple of these texts, uh, Cain and Abel's Day in Court. Why don't we start? Uh, everybody see this? You just you give me the thumbs up. I want to make sure you can actually see my screen here. All right, great. I'll tell you what I'm going to do, guys. Um, I'm going to refresh everybody's memory about the Cain and Abel story. Those of you who have the Hebrew background, you've got the Hebrew text right there. But I'm really going to go with the English at this point so that we can make sure that everybody's really kind of included in the reading of the text itself. And again, as questions about the text come up, put anything that you'd like in the chat. So here we go. What's our context? We know that uh, you know Adam and Eve have, at this point, before chapter four of the book of Genesis, uh, been forcibly removed from the Garden of Eden. They've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is another way of saying the sort of the knowledge of basically everything in potential. God, at that point, realizes it's time for these people to go. Let them go out into the world of reality. I can't have them here any longer. So there they are outside of Eden, in the world of reality, and here goes the story. Now the man, meaning Adam, knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gained a male child with the help of the Lord. She then bore his brother Abel. Abel became a keeper of sheep. Cain became a tiller of the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought an offering to God from the fruit of the soil, and Abel, for his part, brought the choicest of the firstlings of his flock. God paid heed to Abel in his offering, but to Cain in his offering, God paid no heed. Cain was much distressed, and his face fell. God said to Cain, why are you distressed? Why is your face fallen? We get the sense of a, a kind of a deep, almost visceral uh, kind of, you know, physical expression of depression and rage. Surely, God says to Cain, if you do right, there's uplift. And if you don't do right, sin couches or crouches at the door. Its urge is toward you, yet you can be its master. Cain said to his brother Abel, and by the way, folks, notice, of course, the little kind of the little lacunum over here, the dots. They're indicating the fact that we don't know what it is that Cain actually said to his brother Abel. This is something that makes the rabbis of ancient times go nuts. They want to know what is it that they talked about in that field, in the killing field, before Cain murders his brother. So we don't know. The text simply tells us to read the text, read it as Cain said to his brother Abel, dot, 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 right? Something is missing. When they were in the field, Cain set upon his brother Abel and killed him. God said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? 
Then God said, what have you done? Hark, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Therefore, you shall be more cursed than the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. If you till the soil, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. You shall become a ceaseless wanderer on earth. Cain said to God, my punishment, or another translation, my sin is too great to bear. Since you, God, have banished me this day from the soil, and I must avoid your presence and become a restless wanderer on earth, anyone who meets me may kill me. God said to him, I promise if anyone kills Cain, sevenfold vengeance shall be taken on him. And God put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who met him should kill him. Cain left the presence of God and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This, of course, East of Eden, the very end of the story, becomes the title for John Steinbeck's magnificent American novel, that great classic of American literature, East of Eden, which, of course, uses the Cain and Abel story as the basis for its multi-generational story, its multi-generational novel. Now, what we have here is a story about the world's first murder, what Elie Wiesel referred to, by the way, as the world's first genocide. Think about that idea. What was, uh, what was Elie Wiesel of blessed memory trying to say to us? Cain destroys a quarter of the world's population. And so in this deeply metaphoric sense, in this deeply symbolic sense, what Cain has done here by destroying his brother is really destroyed a good chunk of the world. That idea is going to come up in the later rabbinic tradition in the context of a great courtroom scene that we're about to look at in just a few minutes that really tries to emphasize how the Cain and Abel story really can serve as a moral basis, as a literary and spiritual basis for understanding justice and, of course, its opposite, injustice, particularly and especially and surprisingly in the larger context of a courtroom where there should be only this, the dispensation of justice. And yet we all know how easily justice can go awry, even and especially in that setting. Now, one thing I want you to see, one thing I want you to think about, and again, if we were in a different context, we'd be asking questions all over the place about this story. But one thing I want you to focus on, there's almost, and I, I hope that you saw it, folks, um, you know, one of the things that I do in my book, Cain versus Abel, uh, a Jewish courtroom drama, is I imagine this story, chapter four of Genesis, almost as if it were a crime report. Imagine a report being written by a police officer or by an investigator or by somebody like that or a detective kind of, you know, kind of looking at the scene, you know, arrives on the murder scene, tells the story, explains the background, puts together the pieces and the evidence in order to, you know, basically record what needs to be recorded before the case goes to trial. There are elements of interrogation, elements of warning, right? God says to Cain in a rather nondescript kind of way, be careful about what you do with your impulses, right? You can, tr you can basically struggle with those impulses. You can do something with them, right? If you don't do right, sin crouches at the door. Its urge is toward you, but you can be its master. And then later on, God, of course, is going to confront Cain the same way that an investigator of a crime would confront somebody who's a suspect and say, where's, you know, present the body, right? He's sort of, you know, tell me where your brother is. And of course, Cain is not going to give up his own guilt. He's going to protest his innocence in a rather arrogant way and saying, I don't know, I'm not his keeper, which of course drives us, the readers, nuts, because we should be at that moment 
that he says that, saying, am I my brother's keeper? We should be jumping up and down and saying, yes, of course you are. And that's the whole point of the story. It's teaching that responsibility for your brother, for your fellow human being. So think of the story almost as if it were kind of an old kind of foundational courtroom and kind of crime drama and a crime record, a crime report. And before we actually jump into um, the text of the Mishnah, the text of the oral tradition, the rabbinic Torah, that tries to explain this story in a particular context, as we had said before, I want to point out one thing to you. Um, you maybe had caught it just by looking at where I had bolded some of the words in Hebrew. We're going to need to understand these words, particularly, actually, let me do this, actually. Well, these three words are perfectly fine. We're going to try to understand what these words are telling us and sort of the weird anomalous construction in Hebrew of these words to be able to understand what the rabbis of the Mishnah are going to do with this story. Let's go back for for a second, folks. Let's take a look at verse eight of the text. We're going to start right over here for one minute. Cain says to his brother Abel, dot, dot, dot. We talked about that before. There's a lacunum there. There's something that's missing. You know, what's really going on? Did they talk? Did he say something to him? It seems like he did. And when they were in the field, what does Cain do? Sets upon his brother Abel and he kills him. Okay. Now, by the way, I want you to notice something. If you're going to be a really good sort of detective here, what's really interesting about the text here is that the word for kill is not murder, right? This is the world's first, we call it the world's first murder. But what's so interesting is that there has been no murder in the world prior to this, according to the tradition of the Torah, right? What's the word in Hebrew for kill? Here, it's not, excuse me for one second, it's not um, which in Hebrew would basically mean um, uh, you know, he, he murdered him. It's almost as if what he did was he killed him, but almost in a kind of unthinking way, not really knowing yet what murder is. That's just one thing I want to point out about the text. And now let's take a look over here. Um, God says, where is your brother Abel? He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Basically sort of, you know, absolves himself of any responsibility, kind of stands away from his, you know, from his complicity, you know, from, from having committed the crime. And God says, what have you done? Me asita. Hark. Now in Hebrew, the word for hark is kol, which can mean voice, hear, listen, okay? Behold, Right. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. This is one of the earliest indications that um, of sort of, of the way that the Bible thinks about what happens when blood is spilled as an act of violence. In biblical thinking, when you spill blood as an act of violence, not as a sacrificial offering of an animal, but when you spill it as an act of violence, it pollutes the ground. What is the ground doing? The ground is almost spitting up the blood of the innocent Abel, and it's crying out from the earth where Abel has been murdered and now lies murdered. But here's what's interesting. Look at these words for a second. The, the, your brother's blood cries out to the ground for me. What do you notice over here, folks? The Hebrew for, for your brother's blood cries out for me, right, which is in the singular in English, is actually in the plural in the Hebrew. Now, this is not something that people notice a lot of the time. We kind of read through the text very quickly, and we don't often think about this weird grammatical thing going on in the text. God says, your brother's blood, singular, cries out to me from the ground. 
But in the Hebrew, it says, Kol Literally translated, what does that mean? Your brother's bloods with an S, right? Blood in the plural, they cry out to me from the ground. That's a really, really strange construction in Hebrew. If, in fact, what you're trying to say is that the blood of Abel is crying out to you from the ground, then say, kol dam achicha, right? In Hebrew, that would mean your brother's blood, tzo'ik elai min ha'adama. It cries out to me. Um, in the Hebrew, it would work. Remember, in English, it's much harder to kind of grasp that, only because of the fact that they, we don't really have the same kinds of distinctions, you know, for plural and singular in the way that Hebrew does. In the Hebrew, it's very clear. Literally translated means the voice or hark, your brother's bloods with an S in the plural, are crying out to me from the ground. What does it mean to say that Abel's bloods are crying out to God from the ground? Just doesn't make any sense. You would think if it's Abel's blood, then say it in the singular. Now, do know, folks, and then we're going to move on into the text of the Mishnah, that um, the idea of damim, bloods with an S, right, in the plural, usually when you see the word blood in Hebrew, when it refers to an act of criminal violence, right, any act of violence where you spilled the blood of an innocent person, damim is usually a reference to the legal act of spilling blood. Right. In other words, uh, you can see this in Exodus 22 and a number of other places. Um, the word damim in its context usually means blood which has been spilled, which now incurs guilt of the person who spilled it. So actually in the Bible, the word damim in the plural makes a whole lot of sense. That's the word that the Torah uses when it wants to say you spilled blood and you are now culpable for the crime. The later rabbis of the Mishnah are going to use this sort of this weird anomaly in a very, very different way, a very different way. Okay, and I can see that we've got some questions coming in on the chat. That's good. We'll get to them. Okay, right now, I hope that what folks have is a better overall sense of the story, right? We went through the story again. We talked about being your brother's keeper. We talked about God's confrontation with Cain. All of that, it's all there in the text. And we focused in, we zeroed in just in this phrase, your brother's bloods cry out to me from the ground. Here we go. All right, folks, let's continue on this little journey here. We've looked at the biblical text. Now it's time for the oral text of the Mishnah. Remember, the Mishnah is Rabbi Judah, the patriarch's third century, third century CE compilation of what? of all of the oral Torah traditions, the common law traditions that accompany the written Torah. Okay, we've got the Hebrew text there. This is Mishnah Sanhedrin. The whole tractate Sanhedrin in the Mishnah is all about jurisprudential procedure. It's all about how the ancient courts uh, of, you know, of the Jewish people uh, either theoretically or actually functioned with respect to dispensing justice, courtroom justice. We're going to actually look, thank you to Safaria. By the way, if you don't know Safaria, folks, I highly recommend it. It's really one of the great, great new tools of the Jewish people and of really of all people in the world. Safaria is a magnificent online interactive Jewish uh, text library. I use it all the time in my own studying, in my own teaching as well. Magnificent stuff. Let's take a look at what the rabbis of the oral Torah tradition do with 
these verses, this one particular verse from the Cain and Abel story, right? Okay, here we go. Let's set the scene. Chapter 4, verse 5 of Tractate Sanhedrin is going to talk about the interrogation of witnesses prior to a capital trial. Now, remember, a capital crime could be anything from being accused of violating Shabbat to murder to, um, you know, committing adultery. There were lots of different things which in ancient Israel, in ancient rabbinic Israel, and both in, in biblical Israel, would have been considered capital crimes for which one would be put to death, according to ancient Torah and rabbinic law, okay? But remember that the rabbis of the Talmud in particular were quite loath to use the death penalty as a punishment. In fact, there's a tradition, I believe it's in Tractate Sanhedrin, it may be in Tractate Shavuot, that says that, um, that a court that would have put anyone to death once in 70 years, 7-0, was considered to be basically a hanging court. They didn't like capital punishment, and they did everything that they could to make sure that they avoided using it as a form of punishment. They wanted to find ways to say, this person is innocent, he should go free. Okay, so part of the way in which they would do that was an intensive, let's call it admonishment or interrogation. Here the word is intimidation of witnesses. You're a witness in a capital crime. You darn better well know what you're talking about, and you better be speaking truthfully. You could get people into trouble in capital cases if your testimony is either poor or it's a lie. So notice now what the mission is going to do. How does the court, right, a capital court, intimidate the witnesses in giving testimony for cases of capital law, right? Uh, you know, in other words, a capital crime that would incur the death penalty. They bring the witnesses in and they would intimidate them by saying to them, perhaps what you say in your testimony is based on conjecture or perhaps it's based on a rumor. Perhaps it's testimony based on hearsay. That is, you heard a witness testify to this in a different court or perhaps it's based on the statement of a trusted person. Perhaps you don't know that ultimately we're going to examine you with inquiry and interrogation. And if you're lying, your lie is going to be discovered. Okay, so the first thing that the court does is it sets up these witnesses by bringing them in. Remember, the courts in those days didn't have juries, okay? Essentially, who was the jury? The jury essentially were the judges. It was an impaneled group of, uh, at, at, very, at the very least, 23 judges, and at the very most, 71 in the high court. And they would sit there and hear the case, right? And there would be people who would basically represent the defendant or, you know, speak against the defendant. There were witnesses and judges. There were no juries per se. So the witnesses would be brought in, and the first thing that the judges would do in terms of kind of the witness selection was to say to them, are you sure that the information that you have is based on having actually seen and heard what it is that went on, or are you basing this on hearsay? Are you basing this on the statement of somebody else? And, and, and you really are not witness to the actual commission of the crime. They then go on and they say, look, you, witnesses, should know cases of capital law are not like cases of monetary law. In cases of monetary law, a person who testifies falsely, causing money to be given to the wrong party, can give the money to the proper owner and his sin is atoned for. In other words, if you guys lie or if you guys make a mistake or you're sloppy as witnesses in a monetary case, what do you do? You pay him back, right? Basically, there are damages and you pay the guy back. But in cases of capital law, if you testify falsely or your testimony is sloppy, the blood of the accused 
And the blood, watch this, guys. This is so fascinating to me. Notice this. The blood of the accused and the blood of his offspring that he did not merit to produce are ascribed to the witness's testimony until eternity. How do they interrogate these witnesses? Before the trial starts, they remind them, look, you put this guy to death and he's been falsely accused of having committed a crime he didn't commit, and he's put to death on your testimony, you not only put him away, an innocent man, an innocent woman, whoever it is, you're putting away all the potential descendants of that person. Because if you killed the person, there's no way that all these other people could come into the world. They can't, they can't come to life because that person isn't there to give birth to them. You're killing him and you're killing all of his descendants as well. And now comes one of the really rare moments in Mishnaic, oral Torah literature, when in fact, the Mishnah doesn't just state a particular case or state the law. This is a rare circumstance of where the rabbis who put this Mishnah together are going to actually use verses of the Torah, specifically the Cain and Abel story, to do what? To try to make their point using Midrash, right? using active interpretation of the verses of the Torah to make their point to these witnesses about how, how destructive their false testimony in a capital case would be. Watch what happens, folks. What did we say before? Remember when we talked about God saying to Cain, the voice, uh, I'm sorry, you know, uh, heart, your brother's bloods cry out, right? In the plural, right? Let's watch what the rabbis are going to do. This is really interesting. The proof for this, this idea that if you put this guy to death, you're also putting to death all of the potential offspring, we found with Cain, who killed his brother. As it is stated concerning him, the voice, you know, they're translating literally the word cold, hark, right? Your brother's blood, deme, right? Cries out to me from the ground. The verse doesn't say your brother's blood, dam, cries out to me from the ground in the singular. No, your brother's uh, hold on for a second. Let me put that S in. Bloods, deme, in the plural. This serves to teach that the loss of both his brother's blood and the blood of his brother's offspring are, are ascribed to Cain. In other words, your brother's bloods in that verse that we read before, that weird grammatical anomaly, for the rabbis of the Talmud, the rabbis of the Mishnah, that's a reference to two different sets of blood, as it were. The spilled blood of the innocent Cain who got put to death, or of a person who was innocent who got put to death in the courtroom, and the spilled, the potential spilled blood of the brother's offspring. In other words, you guys mess up this testimony, you're going to put this guy to death, you're going to put his offspring to death, right? The offspring who never came into the world, and how do we know it? It's based upon our hyper-literal reading, right? This is a very literal reading of the words in the Cain and Abel story. Your brother's bloods means the blood of the innocent one and the blood of anybody who he could have potentially given birth to. You'll be killing him and his future generations. You'll be killing him and his future generations. And let me just throw out to you folks, even though we're not really going to have time to explain, to describe it or to kind of, you know, discuss it. Um, Let's just go on with one tiny more piece, a little bit more of the mission itself. Don't worry about this, folks. This is just an alternative understanding of what those words mean, right? Your brother's bloods with an S. Let's go on. This is a very famous statement, which is finds its way into Schindler's List and all over Jewish literature. The court tells the witnesses, they continue. They say, 
Therefore, Adam, the first person, was created alone. In other words, think of it sort of, you know, there were the first people to teach you that with regard to anyone who destroys one soul, one, old, one reading is from the Jewish people, another reading is among all of human, humanity, right? Anybody who does that, if you kill one soul, the verse ascribes to that person blame as if he had destroyed an entire world, right? Just as Cain puts his brother Abel to death, and therefore all of Abel's future progeny can't survive, right? Abel could have been an entire world of people, so to anyone who kills another human being who is innocent, right? And here they're really talking about somebody who takes an innocent life. It's as if he had put that entire person's world to death. And anyone who saves one human being, right? Among the people of Israel, among all humanity, it's as if that person had saved an entire world. Because we are not simply who we are. We are all the possible worlds of people who come after us, who are influenced by us, who are touched by us, whose lives are influenced by us. All right, now, folks, listen, we're getting on to the time where we're going to have some question and answer and some discussion. Let's think about what happened here. What's this Mishnah doing? Cain accuses, uh, God accuses Cain of murdering an innocent man, his brother Abel. But the judges in this Mishnah admonish the witnesses about the accused, the person who may or may not himself be Cain, by identifying him potentially with Abel. Why? Here's what I want to suggest, and this is something that I suggest in my book. This is what I think is happening here. What are the rabbis doing with this story of Cain and Abel? They easily could have come up with lots of different stories from the Bible to talk about um, witnesses who are false witnesses, right? There are passages in the Torah, in Deuteronomy, that say, don't be a false witness. It's a bad thing. You shouldn't lie in court, right? Uh, you know, it's very, very clear. Not only that, they could have come up with great stories of the Tanakh, famous story. I think it's in, uh, let me remember exactly where it is. I think it's the story of, uh, yeah, it's First uh, Kings 21, where Jezebel, Ezebel, right, the queen of Israel, basically, in order to get property from um, her neighbor, Navot, because uh, he's got a vineyard that uh, her husband, Ahab, the king, wants. Now, Boat won't sell it to him. It's ancestral property. So what does she do? She basically gets two witnesses to falsely testify against him in court, and she has him put to death. The rabbis could have come up with a million different stories, folks, in order to interrogate these witnesses and to say to them, don't engage in sloppy or false testimony. Why the Cain and Abel story? I think this is the reason why. The reason why is that when you look at Cain and Abel, Cain is somebody who puts, a, who basically destroys the life of an innocent human being. In the context of a courtroom, think about how easy it is for witnesses because of bias, because of all sorts of things, gender bias, racial bias, class bias, because of sloppiness, because of unfairness, because of their own predilections and predispositions, how easy it could be for any witness in a courtroom in such a delicate and sensitive case like a capital case, how easily a person under the guise, right, of righteousness and being a witness and trying to identify the accused as being Cain and seeing justice served, how easily any witness could turn somebody who is potentially Cain, the accused, into Abel. What do I mean by that? 
how easy is it for us when we are faced with a circumstance of having to dispense justice, particularly in a courtroom, within a court system or within a criminal justice system, where we could so easily decide because of all of those biases, because of our bigotry, because of our sloppy thinking, we could easily decide that the person in front of us who was accused, right, who is Cain, is Cain, when in fact, he's not Cain, right? You have to get the facts of the case. You have to really, really look at the case and listen to the testimony and be as fair as you can before you say somebody is actually Cain, somebody is accused of a crime, and they are guilty of the crime. How easy is it for us, under the guise of justice, to turn somebody accused of being Cain into Abel? Where, in fact, what happens? We, by dispensing justice, right, so-called justice, which is really injustice, wind up turning an innocent human being into a guilty human being whom we condemn, in this case, to death. We are the ones who become Cain, and the person who is the accused becomes able. I really believe that that's what's going on in this text. The rabbis are so concerned about dispensing justice with such exquisite fairness and balance because they are so worried about how easy it is for the imbalances of power within even the most fair of judicial systems to falsely accuse the innocent of crimes they didn't commit that they use the Cain and Abel story to make this point, to pack the punch. Be careful. You think that what you're doing is putting this person away, prison, you know, um, you know, death penalty, whatever it is, when in fact, maybe you really don't know what you're doing here. Or maybe you're about to commit a crime yourself by putting this person away or putting this person to death, when in fact, all you've done is resurrected another scene out of the playbook of Cain and Abel where you've turned this innocent person into the guilty person, into Cain, and thereby you've really turned this person into Abel. You've victimized him and not dispensed justice at all. That, I really believe, is a lot of what's going on in this text. And it's one of the reasons why, in my book, I really tried to present the Cain and Abel story really very much as a, a so-called courtroom drama. Yeah, courtroom drama is a fun genre, it's not my particularly favorite genre, but it certainly works here. Uh, and what I try to do in the book is to really show how you have to really look at everyone in this case. You got to understand who Cain really is. You have to really understand Abel. You have to understand their family life. You have to really listen to the evidence. And in doing so, hopefully, not only to kind of unpack in a different way this story of sibling rivalry as a story about families, but really try to understand it as a story about the larger scope of justice in the larger national and human family in which we live. I always like to tell people when I teach this stuff um, that you should always take a story like Cain and Abel, a foundational story, which we said before, try to take seriously without taking literally, right? And try to understand it in concentric circles. Cain and Abel isn't just a story about nuclear families. It's a story about our communities. It's a story about our extended families. It's a story about our national families, about our global families, and what it means to really behave with a sense of justice, and what it means to really try to find within these narratives the moral basis for the creation of law which is truly just.
there is a school of thought in Bible criticism, in, in biblical literature, biblical study today, called the law and narrative school. It basically asserts that law and stories are purposely put together within at least Jewish biblical text. I can't speak for any other, you know, you know biblical text. They're put together precisely because you can't understand law and really dispense it with fairness and justice and compassion until you do what? Until you understand narrative, until you understand the circumstances of people's lives, the biases that they carry into courtrooms, into relationships, into social interactions. You have to understand real people in real time in their real stories to try to understand the laws that grow out of those real people's lives and societies as well. So folks, I'm going to do this because we're getting on and I know that folks want to ask questions. Um, I want to give you one possibility, one possible way of understanding what we did today, right? Looking at the Cain and Abel story, looking at the Mishnah's follow-up that sort of uses the Cain and Abel story to talk about what it means to really promote justice within, within a judicial system, right? That's what the Mishnah does with the story. Um, one thing I want to suggest to you, and it's just a suggestion. I don't know how many of you have read Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. It's considered to be one of the finest. And I'm sorry, I just recently read it. Um, Michelle Alexander um, is a law professor who um, decided that she really wanted to look at sort of what sort of weird Jim Crow, right? All the rules of segregation and sort of, you know, uh, you know, both the spoken and the unspoken, you know, kind of, you know, rules of segregation that have kind of created caste around our very ugly history of race and slavery in this country. She says, what's the new Jim Crow? What Alexander is able to do as a great legal scholar is to show you the way in which mass incarceration in this country, um, uh, she calls it, you know, mass incarceration in the age of colorblindness, in which the war on drugs and mass incarceration, you know, we're, we're really created to do what? To kind of create a new system of segregation, both, um, both sort of de facto and de jure, sort of formally and informally, um, in a way that has so disproportionately targeted um, black and brown men in particular, um, in terms of the sort of the war on drugs, even though they use, they would use drugs or they would sell drugs or they would possess drugs at no higher rate than white men, right? And what she shows you in a very scholarly and thoughtful and painstakingly factual way is the way in which the justice system in this great war on drugs, which has been going on since like the 1960s, 1970s, you know, has essentially taken an entire class of people in this country who, by virtue of race and by virtue of the communities that they live in, and by virtue of class, and has essentially turned them into Cain, so that the entire criminal justice system has created this whole group of people who are basically mass incarcerated, and that has an effect on their lives for the rest of their lives, and it's not a good effect. And all that she's trying to do in the book is to basically say, if you really want to have a fair justice system, you can't allow that kind of racial caste and racial bias to be used against an entire group of people. And she shows you exactly how it's done in America in such a way that you've essentially shot their feet off from the very beginning. She says, if you really want to have a system of justice, and I'm going to use my language now, not hers. You can't presume an entire group of people to be Cain when, in fact, they may very well be able. Because all you're going to do is turn an entire group of people into people who are guilty well out of proportion to what their actual guilt is. 
And that affects their, their lives. It affects the lives of their communities. And just as we learned in the Mishnah, it affects the lives of all the people whose lives they touch, their own children, their grandchildren, their spouses, and everybody else. I do highly recommend the book, folks. Um, even though she's not talking about Cain and Abel, I found that so much of what she was talking about, about racial caste and bias in the criminal justice system in our country, really, really speaks right back to or is, or is really a beautiful, wonderful, painful echo of the Cain and Abel story and what the Mishnah we saw does with it. Let me stop. I see there's a bunch of questions and the like, so I'm going to stop sharing. Um, all right, here we go. Folks, we're a pretty big group. So I think probably what's best, when do you think basically I should just go from the, let's go from the chat questions is probably the best way to do it. Want to do that? Sure. I think there were a couple of interesting questions that were coming as the, as the discussion was flowing. All right, that's fine. Um, I'll tell you what, I see the last one here from my friend, Joel Kushner. Joel, it's good to see you. I don't know where you are right now on the screen, but I'm glad uh, Joel is here. Uh, Joel, you there? There you are. All right. Anyway. Um, let's take a look. I'll tell you what, let me start with Joel's question. Wondering about the verse before the event of the murder, Cain's response to God, God's thought process in favoring or noticing one and not the other. What did all this create? Well, Joel, it's a really interesting question. You know, what's so interesting about the story, and again, I talk a lot about this in the, in, you know, in my book, um, is that our assumption uh, you know, the assumption of a lot of the traditional commentators in the story of Cain and Abel is that Cain's a bad guy, right? You know, you, you know even Cain has sort of been you know, almost dealt a kind of a, a harsh hand, right? Uh, okay, Scott asked it before you. Thank you for letting me know that. Um, you know, Cain is, is kind of beaten up by the medieval commentators and by the early rabbis as well. Um, how so? It is assumed that Cain's offering to God is a poor offering, right? They say he brought flax seeds. They say he brought this, he brought that, whatever it was, right? And then, in fact, God had every reason to reject Cain's offering and to accept, you know, Abel's offering. And there's a hint of that in the text. It says Abel, for his part, brought the best of his flock. But we don't necessarily have to read the text that way, right? The truth is, let's think about it this way for a second, Okay. Um, it, it may very well be that Cain's offering is a very good offering. He's a farmer. And remember something, he's the son of a farmer, right? If you go back to chapter three of Genesis, we already know that God has cursed Adam's farming endeavors. So Cain enters, as it were, the family business and is struggling to do what? To grow crops. He does the best that he can, right? So the idea that God favors Abel's wonderful offering over Cain's lousy offering, which thus justifies God's rejection of Cain, I don't know that that's necessarily the only way that you can read the story. It's one way to read the story. It's an intriguing way to read the story. Rashi reads it that way. Lots of other people do. It's not necessarily the only way. What if, in fact, um, here's one way of thinking about it, folks. Um, what if, in fact, God's God's rejection of Cain's offering simply is what it is because it is what it is. In other words, the story, however unfair or fair you think God has been in terms of God rejecting one and accepting the other, don't demonize Cain. It very well may be that God is trying to teach Cain the lesson of, I do what I do. Things are inscrutable. This is the way that life is. And by the way, Cain, no matter how fair and unfair you feel you've been dealt with, no matter how enraged you are with your anger and your depression and everything else, what don't you get to do? Well, Joel, what do you think? What does he get to do? 
He doesn't get to murder his brother. You can't kill the guy. I don't care if you don't like the fact that I rejected your offering. Okay. I mean to put you on the spot, Joel. I'm sorry. Um, you know, I don't care if you don't like the offering. You still don't get to kill him. Right? Whatever rationales you Kane may have for your rage and your anger and everything else, you have a responsibility to do what? To wrestle sin to the ground, right? It, it, it's really what God's telling you. It's like, it really doesn't matter how you're feeling, Cain. What matters is that you behave like a mensch, that you control your impulses. You know, that's what God decided. Now, here's another reading, guys. I'm giving it away. It's in chapter three of the book. I will tell you, this is what I think. I Thank you, Joel. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think something else is going on in this story. When you look at the Hebrew, guys, this is what it says. It says, It says, what does it say? It says that God basically didn't at that moment pay attention to Cain and to his offering. Why? Who was he paying attention to at that moment? He's paying attention to Abel. Who's the one with whom God has all the conversation in the story? It's Cain. Cain is right there. He's up front. He's the firstborn. He's the one whom Eve names and names joyously, right? I have created a man with the help of the Lord. Abel is an afterthought. Anybody know what Abel's name is in Hebrew? Hevel. What's Hevel? Vapor, wind, mist. Hevel's, to quote Rabbi Springsteen, Hevel is the nothing man. He's the one in the family with no voice. When does Abel actually get a voice? It's such a beautiful paradox. Abel's voice emerges only after he dies. His blood cries out from the ground. At that moment, God is doing what any good parent would do. He's telling the more dominant kid, I'm not paying attention to you right now. I'm paying attention to your brother. Because that's what he needs. So all I'm trying to show you folks is there are a lot of ways that you can understand what's going on in this story. And it isn't simply that God's thought process is, oh, Cain, you were bad. You gave me a bad offering. Abel, you were good. I mean, that's an interesting way of reading the story. I, with all kudos to Rashi, who's always going to be a much greater teacher of Torah than I am. It's, it's, a, it's an intriguing way, but it's not the only way. All right. I hope that answered the question kind of, sort of. Let's, let's take a look at a couple of other questions. Hold on for a second. Let me just kind of roll up. What's our time frame, guys? Do we have a few more minutes for questions? Is that okay? Yeah, we've got about 10 more minutes. All right, that's great. Okay, so Scott, we had basically talked about the, it was essentially the, the same question here. In other words, is paying no heed have more? Okay, so that's essentially the question before. Okay, so Wendy's question, are there consequences for the murder? You figure this is a courtroom scene, right? This is a trial. This is an investigation. Are there consequences for the murder? This is really interesting. Yeah, there are. What's the consequence? It's not what you and I would have thought. Cain isn't put to death, right? My, uh, my friend and colleague and teacher, um, oh my God, I'm trying, I'm remembering her name. I'm not remembering her name. One of my friends, colleagues and teachers who read a whole book on homicide in the Bible um, said something, oh, Pamela Barmash, who's at Washington University. She says something really interesting. She says that Cain's crime is met with really a, a unique kind of punishment. He knows nothing about murder. 
He's never seen it before. How does he know that when in his rage, he picks up the rock and smashes Abel's head in or he throttles his neck or whatever, that Abel's going to die? He doesn't know anything about murder. He's he's never seen it. And so in a sense, you know, you know, there's, you know, there's no way that God can basically put him to death at that moment in kind of, you know, in, in, in conformity with biblical law, because, because he's not really, he's not culpable at the same level as somebody who engages in premeditated murder. Let's assume this is an act of passion. All of a sudden he finds Abel dead under, you know, sort of right beneath him under his hands. And so God basically says to him, look, I'm not going to put you to death. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to exile you. I'm going to make you run off. Basically, what are you going to do? You're basically going to sort of, you're not going to be anywhere near me anymore, right? So he's out of the presence of God. He's exiled. Ultimately, paradoxically, his exile leads him to do what? It leads him to go build a city and name it after his kid, which is its own very interesting sort of kind of rich possibility about the notion of how violence is what builds urban life and what's built civilization. That's an old ancient theme, by the way. You see that in Roman literature all the time. Think about Romulus and Remus and all of that legend, right? Um, and so the consequence for the murder is not, as Pamela Barmesh says, that he's put to death. It's that he has to stay alive so that he can live with the consequences of his, of, of his actions every single moment of the day for the rest of his life. In some respects, that might be more horrible. Uh, let's keep going. And guys, I won't be able to get to all the questions. And I really apologize. You can always email me. Um, Alex, do you mind just throwing my email into the, uh, into the chat, uh, the chat box? That would be great. Rivka asks, so how do we dispense justice properly? Uh, Rivka, are you talking about sort of based on what we read in the Mishnah, we, based on, on the, the Torah itself? I'm not sure I understand the questions. No question. Um, in, uh, in the Mishnah. Well, or, or, or in modern day using, using Mishnah. Here's what I would say. Um, that Mishnah, I think is pointing us in a direction. Okay. And again, this is why I think looking at Michelle Alexander's book is a really great way of kind of extending this conversation. Okay. Um, I really believe that the whole setup of Tractate Sanhedrin, of that entire Mishnah, and I was blessed, uh, one of my Chavrutot, one of my Talmud uh, study partners, it took us 20 years, but we finished all of Tractate Sanhedrin. It took forever and ever and ever and ever. One of the things that we came away from that, from sort of the study of Tractate Sanhedrin was that Sanhedrin is really an attempt, whether or not any of it, sort of, you know, all of it actually happened in ancient times is not clear. Some scholars say that it didn't, that a lot of it is theory. That the point of the theory is to show you what it means, not only to be a society founded upon justice, but founded upon real justice. Okay? I was just talking to my sixth graders uh, where I teach in the day school about this. We did a whole closing session today about justice and looking at Torah interpretation and stuff like that. You know, that what you call justice is often injustice cloaked in, in the language of justice. And you have to be really, really careful about that. And if that Mishnah, using the Cain and Abel story, Rifka, is telling us anything, it's that you better be really, really careful about that. It is very easy to say what we're doing is just, when in fact, you know perfectly well, if you were to really be morally honest about it, you would say, this is not just. We are not behaving in a just way. Just because you have a court system doesn't mean that it's a fair court system. Just because you have a criminal justice system just doesn't mean it's a fair criminal justice system, right? 
Just because the state establishes law doesn't mean that the laws are moral, doesn't mean that the laws are right. And so that's what I'd like to believe, Rivka, is really what the mission is trying to do. It's really trying to say that the, the proper dispensation of justice, right? I'm always looking for sort of like the moral, the values content, you know, sort of underneath the literature of the rabbis, right? What are they trying to say for all their abstractions and all of their dialectic? What are they trying to say about the values of Torah? And here, I think what they're trying to say is real justice in the eyes of God and ultimately in the eyes of a sacred society like ours is about real justice, right? It's about making sure that you are exquisitely attuned to what you might think is fair, but if you're honest, you would see is not fair at all. I hope that helps. All right, good. All right. Um, maybe just a couple more questions, guys. Oh, Wendy, no, um, no, Karate isn't here. Well, that's interesting. No, yeah, maybe you're right. <laughs> maybe you're right. Um, you know, I mean, is the this- ultimate, the ultimate yeah. um, justice dispenser would be God, right? So when you're when you're um, yeah. threatened with Karate, then you know it's coming from God, and you don't know when it's going to be. Yeah, let me, let me just explain what we mean by karate. Karate are 36 different categories of legal violations, which according to the Torah are handled by God, right? Karate just means excision, right? Spiritual excision is a good way to kind of understand it. It may have actually meant being excommunicated from the community. It's not so clear, but the way the rabbis later understand it is that it means some kind of divinely, kind of, you know, divinely initiated uh, you know, you die, you know, sort of you die of a, you know, of a disease or something like that. Um, I don't know that this is the basis, right? I mean, when the Torah talks about karate, it makes it very clear. Karate is, you know, this person shall be cut off from his people, dot, 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 for all sorts of different kinds of things. Here's why I don't think that this is the basis for karate. Murder is not one of those 36, Right? In other words, murder, the human courts have to take care of it. They're given the power by God to take care of murder, right? Capital crime, capital punishment, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? Karate is something which really stands well outside the realm of human initiative, right? It's you did this, God is going to cut you off. The courts follow up, you know, they have penalties like corporal punishment and those kinds of things. But the truth is, no, karit is one of those weird things that, that you know, ancient Jews, rabbinic Jews love to talk about. They don't know anything about it, right? They, this is karit. They don't really know what it means. They come up with suppositions about where it comes from. So I'm not sure that the Cain and Abel story would really serve as the basis, only because the Cain and Abel story is really about you know, fraternal violence, right? Fratricide, and the way that that serves as the foundational model for all violence against human beings as a form of fratricide, right? That's more about the human realm, the human endeavor. All right, uh, let's take one more question. Yeah, uh, so Shani, this is a good question. If you can't understand the consequences of your behavior, and there was no precedent, are you still culpable? Well, as I said before, he's culpable because he acts on his, you know, this is the weird thing about the story. On the one hand, you would think that God would say to him, what, what, what should God have said to him, guys? Should have said, don't hurt your brother, right? Think about what a parent, he sees, a, you know, the older kid really, really ticked off at the younger kid. What does he tell him? He says, I know you're angry at him, but you can't bash that toy over his head. You can't, right? I don't care if you think it's the wrong, if you want to bash the toy over his head. You can't do it. You just can't do it. Does God say that? No. 
God gives him some kind of a weird, abstract, philosophical sort of, you know, you know, kind of, um, what's the word, you know, kind of um, speech about how sin couches at the door. You can take that a million different kinds of ways. God sort of leaves us with this frustration of, of a warning to Cain, which is not really a warning. He simply says, you'd better be very careful what to do with your rage. I can see that you are physically carrying in your body your anger, your depression, your sadness, your sense of rejection. Be careful not to let sin jump you. You jump sin, right? Right? You shall rule over sin. That, combined with the fact that Cain's never seen murder before, seems to kind of, uh, I don't know, I, you know, those might be sort of delimiting circumstances in a court case. He didn't know. He wasn't forewarned. He wasn't, you know, remember something, at least in Jewish law, you have to have two witnesses who warn you not to commit a capital crime. And if you go out and you do it, then they, they you know, they, they haul you into court. So, yeah, I would say that's why God has to basically send Cain out into the world, into exile, has to keep him alive, because in a sense, God hasn't really explained it to him clearly, and Cain really hasn't experienced it clearly. Can I? After that, it's different. Yeah. No, it's okay. Go ahead. No, okay. So I'm just going to say it quickly. Okay. Um, what I was remembering, what I what stood out to me about John Steinbeck the most, so was that Adam, okay, I'm sorry, spoiler alert though, but Adam forgives Caleb, but the way that he forgives Caleb is to say Tim Scholl. So I don't know if God is setting up forgiveness also here. I mean, just to throw that out there. Yeah, no, maybe. Maybe. No, it's a very, very good point. I mean, remember, Steinbeck is doing a midrash on the story, right? That's the brilliance. The brilliance of that book is he does a massive midrash on that story. It's his modern, own modern midrashic interpretation. Is God really kind of setting up, you know, Cain for forgiveness? It's a really, really good point. I mean, the truth is there are later rabbinic passages to that effect that, in fact, Cain is forgiven, Right that he is forgiven and he's reconciled with his parents. And, and remember something, folks, and I guess we're going to have to end with this because it's already five o'clock. You know what's really interesting about this? What is it that God keeps doing with Cain before the murder, during the murder, after the murder, all the way through the story? The one thing that God continues to do. Does he ever cut him off? He says, I send you out into exile. Does he ever stop talking to him? No, no. God never stops talking. He and Cain never shut up. They're always talking. Talk about, talk about excommunication. What's the excommunication? Cain, in a sense, for all that the mark of Cain, as we understand in, in popular, popular culture, is this mark, this kind of demonizing mark of being the evil criminal. That's not what the mark of Cain is. The mark of Cain, as we read in the story before, is Cain receiving some kind of a mark that protects him from people who want to kill him. God, for all of God's anger, right? Think of God as the parent here. For all of God's anger and devastation and trauma at, at Cain's horrible act, he stays in relationship with him. In that sense, you're right. This is forgiveness. doesn't mean that what Cain did was right, but it does mean that there's always the possibility of growth and forgiveness. Thank you, folks. I hope, I hope this is okay. <laughs> It was great. Thank you so much, Rabbi Ornstein. My pleasure. My pleasure. For leading us. Uh, thank you all for joining us. And thank you to our co-sponsors, Beth L. and Wendy. Um, just want to let everybody know that our next program will be on Tuesday, June 21st at 1 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we'll be learning with Rabbi Rachel Adler uh, for Why Bad Stuff Happens to Dissident Theodosies. 
the Odysseys. I'm probably not saying that right. Um, Give me for that. Um, But thank you all again for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Bait Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.